Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since NASCAR was in Nashville the first time around. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport's been, where we think it's going to go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. All right, Ben, we're rocking and rolling. New episode, episode 13, lucky 13, uh, we hope. And to, to kick things off here, NASCAR racing on dirt very recently. Uh, a brand new thing, uh, pretty entertaining from, from, from what I saw, but um, going in a different direction. Our driver of the week this week, I don't think he raced on dirt before, but I, I would have liked to have seen what he could have done uh, if he had a chance to race on dirt at Bristol. It would have been pretty interesting because he was definitely somebody you would describe as a hard charger. Uh, the driver of the week this week, rolling off episode 13, is none other than the unforgettable Mike Skinner who raced in the Cup Series for a long time, was a rookie in 1997, spent much of his career with Richard Childress Racing, had uh, won some races, Ben, did not win a points race, but he, he did win some races. Um, but really, the thing that strikes me about Mike Skinner, and I'm sure you can touch on, is that guy was a real character, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was, and he was very easy to talk to when you do interviews with him, and just a, a down-home sort of racer is the way I would put it. He he came from the short tracks, and I'm not. I'm I'm also like you. I'm not sure if he did any dirt stuff, but knowing Mike probably because he was just good at basically anything he drove. And uh, then there was a gentleman by the name of Theo Dixon. I believe he came into the Cup Series with in a very low budget team. Yep. But by driving those cars for Mr. Dixon, he was able to show what he could do in a car. And uh, Richard Childress noticed him and said, hey, I'd like to give you a shot at RCR, which is an awesome opportunity. And you're right, he didn't win any Cup Series events, but he did, ironically, win both of the uh, races in Japan when we went over there for uh, the race at Suzuka and Motegi, twin mm -hmm. ring Motegi. And ironically, it's just he won those two. And, and you think they were two completely different racetracks, but he was victorious on both. And uh, just a, a really nice guy. I mean, like I said, you talked to him on the phone and, oh, hey, Ben, how you doing, man? It's great to talk to you. 
you know, just didn't have to get. Well, everybody's uh, like that with you, aren't they? I mean, I would well, hope they, they are. Most, most everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, no, but he was just one of those deals where he was just super good to talk to and a lot of fun to talk to, very good personality. And on occasion, I still see him from time to time at various race functions and uh, just had a lot of fun as a, as a cup driver and a lot of fans uh, followed him when he was in the Cup Series. Yeah, one of my, my buddies, Quinn, is a uh, big Mike Skinner fan for a long time. But now you got me curious, saying how cool he is on the phone. Has he ever called you and said, hey, Ben, it's Mike? And did you ever respond with, hey, Mike, it's Ben? <laughs> Probably. You know, since we started doing this show, uh, I did catch myself doing that the other day with a friend of mine. <laughs> That's great. I love and, it. Yeah. So I was like, oh, never mind. It's a long story. You'll never understand. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, you know, you get that in your mind. And uh, and sometimes you're, you're like, oh, wow, I can, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but it's okay. <laughs> That's the first thing I think when I say it. If I text yeah. you, hey, Ben, it's the first thing yeah. I'm thinking. But uh, so back to Mike Skinner. Talk about Mike Skinner, Driver of the Week. If you guys don't know Mike Skinner, uh, the things that I would suggest looking up on YouTube, first and foremost, Ben touched on it. He won at Twin Ring Motegi in Japan in 1998 in the last, like, I guess you'd say big overseas race that uh, the Cup Series had. So he won this race. He held off Jeff Gordon late in the race. And I, I cannot stress to you how impressive that was because this was 1998 when Jeff Gordon, I think he won 12 or 13 races. But honestly, he came super close to about 18 wins that year. He got wrecked out of a win at Richmond. He had a couple close calls, and we're just talking points races. He was just incredibly dominant. Uh, he should have won the Winston, ran out of gas in the last lap. Um, I mean, there were there were definitely some cases, Ben, 98, where Jeff Gordon could have won 17 or 18 points races. So anytime anybody beat him, it, it, was, a, it, were, it was a really impressive thing, and Mike Skinner did it in Japan. Uh, had, had track position on Gordon. Gordon ran him down and couldn't pass him in the last lap, and the fun story behind this, you guys got to look this race up. It's on YouTube, 1998, uh, Motegi, NASCAR. Uh, last lap, Mike Skinner had apparently been yelling on the radio to his crew chief, the the great Larry McReynolds, as it were, um, about how the car, he couldn't keep the car on the bottom of the track. It was tight. It was pushing. He wasn't sure if he'd hold him off. I mean, Mike Skinner's a very expressive guy on the radio, Ben, you know, mm-hmm. not unlike uh, Rusty Wallace, who we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, Skinner was really expressive on the radio, and then... So he crosses the finish line, and he just yells a string of expletives into the the, the mic, and uh, TV caught it, um, which is really funny. Ken Squire and Buddy Baker calling the race, and Mike Skinner goes, yeah, and then a bunch of other things that I can't repeat. But it was really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Skinner is a real character. My buddy Lenny Batiki um, worked at Childress then. He was, he was on the 31 team. Um, he's actually – so if you guys watch this on YouTube – um, Lenny's the one who hands him his Coca-Cola and his hat in victory lane after the race. And he's standing beside Larry Mack in victory lane. But, um, you know, Skinner, really talented driver. Um, I think a lot of people, Ben, probably would say that of the drivers who ran full time in the nineties and, you know, you'd consider the nineties to be their prime. He's probably the one who is the best to not win a cup points race. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Because uh, again, he was really good. He could adapt to just pretty much anything that he drove. And I know his sons uh, also drove on, on some short tracks uh, as well. And yeah. so th- they were just, it was sort of like a family affair there and they were just really good racers. But yeah, you know, something that comes to mind as you were talking, I remember something you, you mentioned Lenny Batiki. Uh Lenny invited me to go with them back when he was uh, doing public relations for Mike Skinner at RCR mm-hmm. to 
a company in Wisconsin that sold uh, welding supplies, and it was one of their sponsors. And so I said, sure, I'd love to. And this is about the first time, honestly, I'd sort of really gotten to know Mike. And we flew up on this private jet, which is really great. We had several other people go with us for that. I remember they gave us some really nice, like, green bomber-type jackets mm -hmm. because we were going to Wisconsin, so it was going to be really cold. But just, uh, you know, the first time I met Mike, he was – Hey man, how you doing? It's good that you're going with us today, and I'm gonna show you this great place we're going. And I mean, he just what I'm trying to say is he was just extremely down to earth, and yeah. very easy to talk to. And every time I I, uh, I talked to him later on, I think he sort of remembered that Wisconsin trip. So we just kind of kicked back and enjoyed going up to that venue, and we had lunch together there. Of course, flew back later in the day. But just super neat. And by the way, I want to correct myself. I apologize. I said something wrong a few minutes ago. Uh, I said Theo Dixon was the key team owner. It's actually Thee, T-H-E-E. -E. My apologies. I just said the wrong word. No, that's okay. Thee Dixon's already texted me. And, you know, he also <laughs> sent me a string of expletives as well. Oh, did he? No, it's, it's, <laughs> I, think, I think you're good, Ben. Um, you're good. Okay. But, I just uh, like to correct myself if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, like I said, you know, we are a crack research team of two. And mm -hmm. uh, so yes, we, are. We, we have a pretty good batting average, but nobody bats a thousand. Um, no. But speaking of Skinner, um, I, I never actually met Skinner until two, three years ago. He came to Speedway. Uh, I guess this was January of 2018, I think. We had a press event. I think you were there, Ben. Uh, mm -hmm. Preseason press event. We had Martin Truex Jr. taking people around the Roval. This was before we'd ever raced in a cup race on a Roval. We were kind of giving people... Truex was giving people pace car rides. And another visual that we had out there was Mike Skinner and his number five truck that he takes to um, racing shows and competes in, like uh, Goodwood, places like that. So he's in this number five truck. It's, it's labeled the Gunslinger, as, as Skinner's nickname. Uh, very fitting, as it were. Um, he's driving this truck around. And so I I had to go to the garage area where he was set up for, for something to ask him, or, or maybe it was just to go get him. Um, and he was uh, he, he was working under the truck like he was a crew guy. And so he slides out, and I'm like, uh, hey, are you the American? Um, now, if you guys don't know, and I don't even know you, if you know this, Ben, um, the uh, the British car show, Top Gear, those guys started a spinoff show on Amazon, and they had a guy test out vehicles for them on the show called The American, and it was Mike Skinner. It's fairly recent, last four or five years, and so that was mm -hmm. another nickname that Skinner had picked up uh, because he's working with all these British guys, and yeah, he was just such a personal guy, a personable guy. He, uh, I take him back to um, the, the truck that they had set up in after the event was over and, you know, I'm just kind of chatting with him and I walk in and he's like, well, Hey, we just got a big old plate of barbecue from, uh, from, from Jim and Nick's. If you want some, man, make your plate. I mean, just you know, to your point, Ben, mm -hmm. he's just such a, such a welcoming guy. I mean, you don't get too many unassuming people in NASCAR who are like that. And Skinner's yeah. always been that way. He's super cool. And one more Skinner story for me. So the first yeah. truck race, Ben, that I ever saw in person, 2009, North Carolina education lottery, 200 at Charlotte in May of 09. Um, my dad, uh, one of, one of our family friends worked for Hendrick. And so we got to watch it from the Hendrick suite, which is super cool. Uh, watch all-star qualifying and, and watch the truck race. And, uh, the big memory of that is the huge crash that Skinner had. My gosh, if you guys have never seen it, that's another one to look up. He, he's trying to avoid an accident that, that's already taken place. And he just gets clipped in the quarter panel and sent head on into the wall. And I mean, 
that lifted that truck off the ground. It flipped upside down, skidded down the front stretch. It was an awful, awful crash. And he got out and he was okay. And he kept racing. Mm. Um, that was one of the biggest wrecks I ever saw at, at the speedway. And, and Skinner was the subject of it, but you know, thank goodness he was okay. Um, certainly kept on racing. I think his last cup start was 2011. Ben, he was driving the big red car in uh, 2010, 2011, a little bit. But really, when you think of Mike Skinner, his prime was in the blue and yellow number 31 Lowe's Chevy for Childers. Yeah, it was. And, you know, he just, he he was such a guy that, uh, like, for instance, if you were to write something about him, uh, he would either send you a note or call you and say, hey, man, I saw that thing you wrote on me, and I just really appreciate it. I mean, you don't get that ever. And, I know, yeah. And. And he was just, just a, I can't say enough about how cool he was to be down to earth and, and a great role model and mentor to people. You know, that's something that, in my opinion, we don't have enough of as far as uh, professional athletes. We sadly see so many of these terrible stories and, you know, other venues of, uh, of sports where they're not very flattering. And so when you have a guy who... Uh, does a lot of charitable type work, which he does, mm-hmm. and just really supports the youth and does things like that. It's just very, very nice to see someone put their time and energy into it while they're still trying to run a cup car. And he was he was good about doing the charitable stuff too. Yeah, Mike Skinner, just a super super awesome guy. I mean, there's there's countless stories of of, of Skinner's coolness um, that, that you guys should look up. But uh, while we're on the subject of super personable guys, Ben, who guys who raced Chevrolets and, and as a matter of fact, guys who were in that, that Motegi race, uh, I'd be remiss not to bring up. And I wrote a column about this. You guys should check it out in the Out of the Groove Viewer's Guide we do every week. Drops on Friday. Uh, you guys can check the at NPP Mag uh, Twitter account. We always post it. Make sure you guys uh, catch up to the, the most up-to-date things on nascar as far as news and entertainment columns podcasts all kinds of stuff this podcast lives on there as well so it's another easy way for you guys to find it kind of a clearing house for everything to get fans amped up for the weekend but one cool thing that happened last week ben to me uh i was very fortunate that uh, dale earnhardt jr who for the first time he ever drove a cup car was in the race skinner one at motegi 98 as as i know you recall because we've talked about it before Mm -hmm. um Dale Jr. brought out his number eight Goodrich Chevy Nova that his dad drove in the 1980s to multiple Xfinity Series wins. Uh, Dale Jr. spent the better part of two years renovating this car after he bought it. It started out as a, a Pontiac Ventura that he ran, that they are in the Xfinity Series in the early 80s, and uh, it, it later lived as, as the Nova that it is again now. Um, won multiple races, one at Charlotte, one at Darlington, and one at Daytona. So Dale Jr. announced on his podcast that he was going to bring the race car to uh, to Charlotte Motor Speedway, and I just so happened that I had gotten wind of this as well and knew that happened to know the time he was going to do it. So myself and my two social media cohorts, Willie and Will, uh, we went down there with Marcus Smith, the uh, president and CEO of Speedway Motorsports, and a couple other folks. And uh, so we were there for, for Dale Jr. getting there. I wasn't sure what this was going to be like, Ben. I, I was thinking he I, I, he's going to bring this eight car. I didn't know what the deal was going to be. We assumed they were going to have you know their crew there, and I, I was very surprised that they weren't. So, um, you know, we asked Marcus if it was okay for us to capture this. And, you know, I've got my camera. Will's taking social stuff on his phone, too, and Willie's recording it on his video camera. And um, Marcus like, all right, well, I'll ask Dale and see what he thinks. I'm not sure, but, you know, worst we can do is ask so mm-hmm. they roll up they're on a flat there's not they're not 
extra vehicles. It's just a, it's just a flatbed. It's three people: Dale Earnhardt Jr., Josh Berry, his Xfinity Series driver in the eight car, and uh, the director of motorsports for Junior Motorsports, L.W. Miller, another former driver. And that's it. So Dale climbs out, and uh, you know, in a hoodie and jeans, and they get to work. They're just uh, you know taking the car off the uh, off the flatbed, and, and Dale Jr. climbs in. And I was thinking like I got to make a point to you know to say hey to him or thank him for coming out later. You know I'm I. I don't want to get in his way. I was just thankful that Marcus asked him if we take pictures and, and everything. He goes, yeah, sure, I don't mind. So, again, like Skinner, uh, Ben, super, you know, approachable guy. And so mm-hmm. he climbs in the car, puts his helmet on, and rolls it down to pit road. And, and we walk out of pit road, and, and Dale climbs out. And you can tell he's just giddy. I mean, you know, he is as, as much a student of this sport, as much an appreciator of, of NASCAR history as you and I. Um, he's certainly been blessed not only with the, with the driving skill, which – vastly surpasses us um i'm sorry to report <laughs> but also uh you know he he's uh, he, he's been blessed with the ability to appreciate this history and recognize it and want to share it with other people and so i was lucky to be one of the seven people who got to enjoy this um and so he gets out and i'm kind of standing behind marcus and um and dale jr sees me and uh he starts walking over to me i was like no way and, I, and i've talked to him dozens of times over the last mm-hmm. several years and for working at the speedway and as a journalist for years before that but it's still cool man you just can't you know i wasn't gonna bother him and he, he sees me and he walks over he's like hey man checks man how you been uh you know good to see you it's like oh, good to see you too dale um and I had to give him props because he helped me go viral ben you're gonna get on twitter at some point i'm hoping i've been on yeah. twitter for <laughs> like 11 and a half years and I'd never gone viral on anything. It's not something that I ever tried to do. And it's not something that I cared. You know, I, I don't post any too much regularly. And, um, so, you know, wasn't a huge power to me, but I found this video of a guy, uh, who recorded Dale Earnhardt qualifying on pole night at Charlotte in 1994. And I tweeted it out a couple weeks ago. I didn't tag Dale Jr. in it cause I, I didn't know that he would see it. And, you know, wasn't a, a thought to, of mine, but somebody who I'm friends with retweeted it. Dale Jr. saw it and quote tweeted it. This thing blew up. Like Ben, the video that I've ever, the all time, like most views I've ever had on video on Twitter that I've done had like 2000 views, may, maybe. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. This one got 169,000 views. Um, wow. And thanks to Dale Jr. Like 1600 likes. He got such a kick out of it. So I was like, Dale, man, thank you for letting me go viral on this Bill Canel PA video. And, so he was like, oh, man, I've been looking for that. You know, I've been talking about my podcast. I've been trying to find something with Bill Connell. So Bill Connell was the PA announcer at Charlotte in uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. You know, big, booming voice. Bill Connell's voice uh, personified my childhood, and Marcus and Dale Jr. agreed with me. It was the same for them, uh, just in a different decade. Um, mm-hmm. So I just had a fun time watching, you know, chat with him and catching up and um, watching him drive his good wrench car around there. It was such a blast. He, he like, like, like Skinner. He is super uh, approachable, super friendly, and um, you know uh, us being NASCAR historians, Ben, it was super cool to see a GM Goodrich, a black GM Goodrich Chevy at Charlotte Motor Speedway again. Oh yeah, for sure, and and that's just kind of etching in our minds all the times that Dale Senior uh, wheeled those black cars around Charlotte. But you know, talking about Bill Connell, that was something you may not know, but there was a re- a, a movie made in nineteen late seventy one, I believe. Uh, and Jeff Bridges was the star. Last American Hero. Last American Hero. Well, one of the guys that works for uh, Jeff Bridges in the movie, after he goes to the prominent race team, 
which is by the way a Sam Ard double zero Chevrolet, yeah, is Bill Connell, and he's one of the crew members in the movie. I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, <laughs> he actually found a place in the movie, and he was like the Jack Man or something for that movie. But very interesting how people. He's like, oh, I know him. I didn't know he had anything to do with NASCAR or uh, as far as the movie stuff goes. Right. And, uh, so there he was, and so there I, you have it. But, I did not know that, um, I, I because. You know, I, I knew Bill Connell as the voice. He had this big booming voice that just, you know, that PA voice. Here's Dale Earnhardt. You know, that yeah. was he, yeah. he just nailed that. And finding that video was so awesome to me. And then to share it, like five minutes after I shared it, it had two likes. And I was like, all right, two likes. That kind of justifies me going to the trouble to edit this. And I'd actually found it, edited it months before and forgot about it. And it was just a Wednesday afternoon. I was like, you know what? I'm going to post this. I want some people to, you know, I'm going to see if anybody else likes it. And, uh, thousands of people did. Um, I forget his name, which which makes me feel bad because I'm an avid football fan. But the defensive end for Washington saw it, and he was like, uh, "Man, that gave me chills." Um, you know, a lot of people got uh, had a great appreciation for it. Um, our buddy Ryan McGee at ESPN, a fellow North Carolinian, uh, McGee retweeted it too. You know, there's a lot, just a lot of people who grew up watching racing in the nineties too, ha- could understand Bill Connell's reach. And even if you go up in the seventies or eighties, like Dale Jr. And Marcus, you know, it's the same thing. And, um, I did not know that Ben, that Bill Connell. So I remember the part, I remember the dude, but I never put two and two together that that was actually Bill Connell, the Charlotte Motor Speedway P- um, PA guy. So mm-hmm. that, that's super cool. And I learned something recently about Bill, um, from our GM, Greg Walters, executive assistant, Elizabeth. And she, she told me, she's like, uh, Thing about Bill that I think a lot of people didn't know, every race day in where Bill would set up in the press box at Charlotte, uh, he would have a big old stack of unwrapped Reese cups beside him, and he would just <laughs> take one off the stack and munch on it, you know, just have this didn't stack have this stack of Reese cups sitting there, um, you know, and, and hey, maybe Reese cups are good for the voice, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe... Maybe Reese should uh, should sponsor us, Ben. I mean, I I, I can think I'm of a whole totally lot agree. worse things than having a big old stack of Reese cups beside me because I like Reese cups. And um, I'm gonna give you a chance to roast me now when it comes to food because Lord knows I've done enough to you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's okay. So I'm I'm the type of guy, and y'all are gonna hate this. Um, I don't know anybody who does this but me, and I I, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not the only one. So I eat a Reese cup. The way I eat a Reese cup is I eat the chocolate around like the corner, you know? So I eat around the corner. So the whole edge of it is gone. I eat that first. Mm-hmm. And then I eat the top part of the chocolate. And then I eat the peanut butter. Um, I don't know why I do. I think it's because I typically have them in, in a one or two. So you, you want to make it last, you know? So that's my excuse. And I know nobody does this. Most people just finish it in two or three bites. But I want to savor my Reese cups. So the way I've always done it is eat around it and then eat the top and then eat the rest. I know it's weird. It's just me. Well, uh, no, I mean, I got to admit to you, I'm, I'm not a nibbler on that type of deal. I'm just, <laughs> just go for it type. You know, I just yeah. gotta, I gotta just pop it in my mouth and go with it. But, uh, yeah, my, and, I'm, and I have to admit, I'm sort of a secret, like closet Reese person. And the reason is it's not on my diet and I'm not supposed to have them. <laughs> I hear Yeah. I, have, so, I don't remember the last so, time I had a Reese cup, but now I'm craving one. I love my wife dearly. I love Eva dearly, but I have to, if I have a Reese cup, I'm supposed to do it in private because she, she gives me the one eye like, well, you're not supposed to be eating sweets. <laughs> and, uh, you're right. 
But it's amazing. It's truly amazing how I'm not supposed to eat sweets, but when she gets this idea for a hot fudge sundae, somehow it's okay. So I'm still trying to figure that out. Do, but, you, go, do you buy the groceries or she get the groceries? Uh, she gets them. Oh, man. See, that's the killer right there. You yeah, know, like if you go get them, purpose. you know, <laughs> do like what my dad would do. You know, you just have that extra bag that nobody sees that you keep in the truck yeah, with the snacks sure. and stuff in it, man. That's what you got to do. Well, um, it might be true. Let's just say that might or might not be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a smart thing to do. You know, you can't be pulling a Bill Cannell because she'll be walking yeah. by you and seeing this big old stack of Reese cups, and you know, you you can't lose your cover. So you know, that's important. But yeah, now now you got me craving Reese cups, and it's yeah, it's not entirely so. my fault. But I thought that was yeah. a cool story. We are so far off topic, but yeah, yeah that's, that's okay. okay. You know, it's our podcast, and you know, we're we are affording ourselves the creative liberty to descend from mike skinner to reesey cups because how many other podcasts are you going to listen to that go i mean we've talked mike skinner we've talked the jib goodrich car we've talked dale jr we've talked a british car show we've talked reesey cups and talked bill cannell in like what 20 minutes i mean that's, I'm that's just i'm just impressed that you still remember all that it is a smorgasbord <laughs> I, I got a good night's sleep so that's why good deal. Um, yeah <laughs> so let's let's spin let's spin it all the way back around um uh, we've certainly covered all these random things already. Um, but one thing I want to talk about, he, I, I don't think Dale Jr. ever drove a 13 car. I don't think Bill Connell ever drove a 13 car. Um, and I don't think uh, Jeff Bridges drove it in Last American Hero. But a lot of good drivers have driven the number 13 car in the NASCAR Cup Series. And um, Ben, episode 13, talk about the 13 car. What do you got? Well, here's the deal, and this is interesting to me, but after doing some research, as I do each time trying to figure out who was the first winner in the number 13, guess what? We don't have a winner in car number 13 ever in NASCAR history. Uh, Casey Mears has the most races in the number 13 with mm -hmm. 227, followed by Ty Dillon at 144, but there are no wins for the number 13, but there's probably a really good reason for that because, you know, if you went to Joe Witherly, Fireball Roberts, uh, uh, Rex White, any of those guys from the 60s and said, well, I'm going to run a 13 car, A, they would look at you like you had three heads, B, they probably wouldn't pit beside you in the garage. They was very, very serious about the superstitions, and 13 was just something that you didn't do ever. And then it's so ironic how much has changed because the Geico car that Ty Dillon drove was not only 13, but it was green and had green on it. But, I mean, these guys were extremely uh, superstitious about the number 13, things like, you know, peanuts and, and I mean, the color green and all that. That was just – they were very serious about it. Matter of fact, David Pearson was at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, in the in the late 70s, and they had pitted Elmo Langley, number 64, a green and white Ford beside of his 21 Perlator Mercury for the Wood Brothers, and he said, we're not going to have this. I'm not going to have him pit beside me. And so they had... It's not like they were going to share the track, though. That's what's so weird about it. Yeah, but they, I, I know. And, and you know, that, and they moved Elmo's car to a different location because Pearson demanded it. That's a true story. And then there were times where people would try to toss like a green towel or a green cloth on some of these drivers, especially Joe Weatherly. Joe Weatherly would get fighting mad if somebody did that to him. And where that started was back in the 1920s, there was an open wheel race, I believe in England, and someone was driving a green car at, that crashed. 
and the unfortunately the driver was killed and so that spread but now this dates way back to the 20s and so you had people on short tracks and on the beach and various places that were racing long before nascar came into existence but this was like an absolute no-no you didn't run a green car and lord help if you ran 13 in green it was just a, a thing to do not to do but uh yeah, the number 13 has never been a victory in victory lane in at NASCAR competition at all. Uh, so it's just kind of kind of interesting how how people have kept that going now. But you got to go back to Darrell Waltrip and the Gatorade car from the 70s. That was really the first time Green came into the mix in NASCAR, and as far as a winning car, now Elmo Langley ran Green cars for years, but yeah. as far as the first winner would have to have been Darrell Waltrip in the in the number 88 Diegard Gatorade car. And 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 since then, Ben, I mean, there's been so many. I mean, I don't know what the stigma of Green cars is now. You certainly don't see a ton still, but like Harry Gant had all of his success in the Cup Series in the Green number 33. Dale Jarrett won his first Daytona 500 in a Green 18. Bobby Labonte won his only championship in a green 18. Kyle Busch has certainly had some good races, and I think he's won a few times in a green 18 as well. So, you know, green, I don't think. And it's funny that you mentioned that about the 20s and and, and Britain. Men, mm-hmm. do you know why uh, that guy was probably driving a green car? Um, Not really. Probably, I mean, a shamrock green was popular in England, I guess. Okay, so before the days of sponsors, and honestly – NASCAR paved the way. NASCAR and to some extent the Indianapolis 500 paved the way. I guess Indy before NASCAR, but then NASCAR really modernized it. Before sponsorships were really a thing in motorsports, uh, in Grand Prix racing, in F1, um, teams you know they could they could paint a car whenever they wanted. And typically, what they would do is they'd paint it in their national racing colors. So the British national racing color is dark green. The Italian racing color is red. Therefore, Ferrari always drives a red car. The mm-hmm. American racing color is uh, dark blue with a white stripe, like you've seen on the Ford um, GT40s. Like if you guys have ever seen um, Ford versus Ferrari, which is an awesome movie, by the way. Um, or, you know, a lot of sports car races that we've had American drivers and American teams, they drive this dark blue car with the stripe. That's, that's the American color. Um, but it was probably because in Britain... Green is a national racing color. You know, now in, in F1, you know, Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll drive a green Aston Martin car. Um, and it, so it's funny that in the U.S. it's like, you know, a big deal that you, know, you can't drive a green car. But like overseas, you know, if you're British, that was just what you did for decades. Um, so it's a very it's very interesting Ben, that the culture is different overseas as it is here with regard to superstitions. But one mm-hmm. that has always been the same, as I found this kind of funny, is that so in the last seven or eight years, F1 made it to where drivers could pick whatever number they wanted. You know, it's it's called getting with the times. Um, before the last seven or eight years, your car number changed every year based on where your team finished in the constructors' championship. So if you had the the if you won a championship the year before in F1, you could use the number one. Um, and if your team finished, you know, second of all the teams, then your drivers drove numbers three and four. But if you finish sixth, seventh in that area, you would expect, all right, well, somebody drives 13 and 14. Nope. What they always did in F1, always thought it was so strange. I mean, there are probably some minor exceptions at some point, but generally what they would do is there'd be car number 12, 11 and 12, and then they would skip 13 and the next team would be 14 and 15. So nobody ever drove a 13 car. Um, so no. had no problem with driving a green car, but you know, heaven forbid they drive a 13 and 
Um, speaking of the 13, a postscript on that, um, I think the most recent poll, the 13 car won, and it's got an asterisk on it because you know it won it, but it didn't, uh, was at Bristol, the site of our most recent cup race. Uh, Ty Dillon in 2012, the fall race, I was actually there for this, was fastest in happy hour, and uh, cup qualifying got rained out. They got the Xfinity race in, but cup qualifying was a washout. And so Ty Dillon in the 13 Geico car rolled off P1. And he did not finish there, as Ben said. Nobody in 13 cars won a race. Um, uh, did I say Ty Dillon? I meant Casey Mears. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Had to catch that. But uh, Ty Dillon later, Ben, at Dover in 2017, I remember he had a heck of a run. A lot of people were thinking this could be the day that Ty gets his first win. Um, unfortunately, it didn't happen. He got caught up in an accident late, late in the race. But uh, the 13 has come close to making it to victory lane. Um, you got to think one day it will. It, it's kind of crazy that that it never has, especially when you consider the success the 12 and the 14 have had. And you know, Jerry Nadeau drove the 13 for a while for a team co-owned by Bill Elliott and Dan Marino. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I mean, Ben, do you think there's something to this green 13 thing? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, superstition goes way, way back. And, and you know, people have asked me about the peanut shells. My understanding on the peanuts was that there was a driver somewhere very early in the game, in the 30s, short track, and I can't tell you where it happened. But this driver was very cocky about his driving ability, and he was sitting on the hood or the fender of his car popping peanuts like they were going out of style, you know, it's still in the shell. And he was throwing peanut shells everywhere around his car. And he gets out on the racetrack and he loses his life in a crash after being so cocky about how great he was. And so after that, people stopped with the the peanut shells. And, of course, we've discussed the green part of it. But, you know, um, there's a driver that we've talked about, I believe, in the past on the show. Bobby Isaac was mm-hmm. one of the most superstitious drivers there were. Matter of fact, in uh, August of 1973 at Talladega, he's driving Bud Moore's number 15 Ford leading the race and he heard voices saying I need you need to get out right now get out so he pulls into the pits he takes off his uh seat belts slides out of the car and says I'm done I've heard voices I'm not going to get back in a race car and so I guess he needed to heed that and I think Cuckoo Marlin who was Sterling Marlin's dad got mm-hmm. in the 15 that day and finished the race. So it's, it's a very, uh, there are drivers that are extremely, uh, superstitious, maybe not so much today, but in the years past, they've been very, very superstitious about this. And and the number 13 was just for years and years was something you just did not see in a, in a garage area. However, I take that back a little bit because Smokey Eunuch ran the number 13, a gold car, a gold numbered black car, that Curtis Turner, Turner, Johnny Rutherford, various others drove Ricky in the Bobby. early 60s. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the 13 has been around. I'll, I'll uh, Maybe I need to take that part back but because I thought of Smokey. But, yeah, I mean, for the most part, people just didn't want to run 13. And knowing Smokey, he did it just to, to defy the odds. Probably. Because, yeah, because he was – that was about – that's what Smokey Eunuch was about. The You know, a, a great engine builder, team owner – who, if there, it was in the rule book, he'd figure out a way to reword the, the, the rule and, and do it his way. And so 13 was the car that he ran and, and you know, was successful with a little bit, but never won with it. Smokey Eunuch, truly the NASCAR's answer to Al Davis in the NFL. 
yeah, everybody, very much so. everybody says, I want a ham sandwich. He's going to say, well, I want roast beef or, you know, just <laughs> has to swim upstream. And, um, like Al Davis was a great innovator who helped change the sport uh, during his time. Um, but you know, it got me thinking green 13, uh, Ben, Dan Marino in football, green 13 set all these passing records, but never won a Super Bowl. Maybe, maybe he should have wore 12. Maybe he should have wore 14. Well, I think mm-hmm. Bob Greasy might've worn 12 with, uh, Miami. So maybe he should have worn 14, but maybe I had something to do with it. I never know. Maybe, I, maybe I, so. And you know, there are hotels around that don't, they do not have a 13th floor. It's, you go from 12 to 14. So just, Hey, just saying, you know, people but, didn't want to stay on the 13th floor because of yeah, bad luck. And, that is very true. It's not just in racing. It just, you know, that thir- poor old 13 just can't get a break. I know, man. It's the Roddy Dangerfield of numbers. It's not fair. I guess so. I, you know, there you go. I, yeah, that's strange. I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, see, to me, like, if you're staying on the 14th floor, aren't you still staying on the 13th floor? You just rebranded it. Like, does rebranding it, is that enough? Does that wash away the bad luck? I'm, I'm curious. Because I think I might have stayed on the 14th floor. But, you know, it, it's really the 13th floor. You just... You just you're just slapping a new number on it, but it, you know it's really yeah. the thirteenth floor at, at its hey, heart. Hey, you know what? It's it's one of your expertise areas. It's all about PR and marketing. So there you go. That's right, man. You gotta, you know, you're you're just making it look good. Remember, you know, I, I may feel like it's the thirteenth floor, but I'm selling it to you, Ben, as the fourteenth floor. Yeah. And as long as you buy it, then I've done my job. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. I mean, you can go outside and you can count the rows of windows if you like, but hey. It's the 14th floor as far as you're concerned, and if they like it, great. That's right. You get on the elevator, you won't see the number 13 because we don't have a 13th floor. We go from 12 to 14, 13 just doesn't exist for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, But it would be cool to see the 13 car win. Um, it's kind of crazy that it hasn't. I mean, like I, like we've said, there have been good drivers to use it. I just, for whatever reason, you know, and, and honestly, like, you know, superstition is a big thing in sports. I think it's biggest in motorsports and baseball, um, but when these other things have gotten disproven, you know, green cars won championships, green cars have won, you know, Daytona 500s, green cars have won all the big races. Like at this point, like if, if we can strike the green car deal, can we strike the peanuts and can we strike the number 13? You know, I, I want to see, I want to see a 13 car sponsored by planners, peanuts win a race, just, just to put this thing to bed <laughs> for good. That would be cool. That You're right. I hadn't thought of that. That'd be awesome to, you know, just, just go for broke, man. But I agree with you. I think somewhere along the way, 13 is going to become a winner in, in the Cup Series. Somebody's going to have it. Uh, there might be – you know, a lot of times sponsors – we've talked about this very quickly. I'm off beat again. But sponsors would change their – ask to change car numbers to go along with the sponsorships. And I remember, uh, you know, of course, 7-Eleven with yeah. the Wood Brothers. Yep. There was one called 84 Lumber, I think uh, – uh, they changed the car number to 84 because yeah. it was 84 lumber. So, Bush you know, car, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it could be that someone would come along and say, you know, 13 Enterprises or whatever their whatever their name is and put 13 on it could win. You never know. So, Kelly Green, Planners, Chevrolet, Ford, Toyota, Dodge, whatever, number 13. That's that's the game. See, that's what I would do. I need to get back on iRacing and I'm going to have somebody make me a green Planners Peanuts number 13 car. I'm going to win a race, um, and we are going to exercise these demons. And what would be so funny is if somebody does this in real life. Somebody drives the planners peanuts of a 13 car to win a race. It's green, and they're like, oh, man, they finally exercised the demons, and then they fail tech. 
Yeah, you never know. And, and, you know, very quickly, we can get on another subject here in just a second, but Janet Guthrie also drove a, a green Kelly Girl Chevrolet. Yeah, that's right. In, in the 70s and did well, very well for the for the races that she entered in the Cup Series at Charlotte and Bristol. And uh, But it was a green car, number 68, uh, Kelly Girl was her sponsor. So, so there you go. All righty. Well, rocking on uh, with another subject, and this is one that is pretty near and dear to me because I never got to see a race at this track, uh, well, live, because this last race I was less than a year old. Um, Riverside International in California, Ben, was unlike any road course that NASCAR has ever raced on. Um, for a, a long time, they took the attitude of, what's a rumble strip? And... Um, you know, that, that long, long sweeping right-hander to get back on the straightaway, such a unique racetrack. It was the site of some tragedy. We lost Joe Weatherly there. Um, it was also a place where IndyCars raced for, for a long time. Uh, had some, some crazy wrecks late in its iteration. Ruben Garcia, I think in the 88 Budweiser 400, almost wrecked into like a grandstand area. He just like smashed through like three different walls. Um, one of which was concrete and came to rest there. I think he got out and he's okay, but had some wild wrecks, had some wild finishes though too, Ben, at Riverside, which is the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast track of the week. Um, Riverside is uh, where some, some big names got their first wins. Bill Elliott bagged his first win. Uh, was it 83, Ben? Is that right? Yeah. Um, 82 80, or 83? 82 or 83, right. So he won it when Bobby won his championship. I think. Okay, that would be 83. Yes, all right, so 83, because then he won a few races in 84, and they're like, oh, this guy's pretty good, and then he just blitzed the field in 85 on everything but the championship. Um, but Riverside was this really cool racetrack out in California. Um, I think the interesting thing, Ben, to me about Riverside that a lot of people don't remember is that until the early 1980s, the Daytona 500 was not the first race of the season. So you had speed weeks. You had the Bush Clash for a few years, after the season had already started, which is so strange to think about, but they ran the season opener was in mid January at Riverside and then a couple weeks off and then the Bush clash and then the Daytona 500 and the rest of the season. And it was like that for quite a while. So, you know, everybody think looks at the Daytona 500. That's always set the tone. It's a Super Bowl of motor racing events. It's, it's the first race of the year. Well, it wasn't always the first race of the year. Those guys used to run at Riverside as the first race of the year. And for a while, it was the last race of the year. And in between, it was all ovals. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Part of the reason that they started off at Riverside for so many years was, unlike today, back in the, say, mid-70s, early 70s, and then maybe a little bit into the early 80s, what you would have in those situations was that once the the, the season was over, then you wouldn't hear a huge amount about NASCAR between, say, uh, November and January. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just didn't. Not like we do today, where right. there's something constantly being churned out. Back in those days, it was crickets. You just didn't hear a lot. So when you had a race team that had to, to go from one season to the next season, they needed a race to to get the cobwebs pretty much out of the teams, out of the cars. And so that's part of the reason they went to the road course there at Riverside and then started their biggest Super Bowl type race, if you will, starting with Daytona in the next race, because they felt like, okay, if we start with the Daytona 500, there's still cobwebs, there's still things to work out where when you went to Riverside, 
uh, it's a road course, so you had a chance to sort of work out some bugs and work out some crew members and that kind of thing before you got to the big race. But, you know, talking about uh, Riverside, it was a, a great racetrack. There wasn't a lot to see around the track. What I mean by that is it wasn't – you didn't see the – the, the plush green fields and a lot like you would maybe see sometimes around Sonoma. It was pretty much dirt around this racetrack. Right. It wasn't, wasn't really all that attractive, but it was built in 1957 by a company called the West Coast Automotive Testing Group. Uh, and it was basically built as a test track, I think, to start. And then a gentleman by the name of Rudy Clay, C-L-E-Y-E, was the person who actually come up with the concept of building the track. And like so many other racetracks we've seen happen with Charlotte and, and you know, very a lot of them, and, and when they first came into fruition early on, they ran into some financial issues. And, of course, they had to get some, some help getting things going. But by September of 57, you know, California Sports Car Club events were there. And and, uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, NASCAR ran there and of course we see a lot of the old footage of uh you know say aj foyd and parnelli jones and uh dan gurney driving for the wood brothers and stuff in the early 60s and so a lot of great races at, at riverside and even one that i particularly remember was 1983 uh, when bobby allison won the championship that year but he had battled daryl waltram in 81 and 82 uh neck and neck to get to the championship and finally won it in 83 but that's where they were having difficulty with the car and they couldn't figure out why they were getting such poor gas mileage in, right. in bobby's car found out that someone had put sugar in the gas tank to try to help him not win the championship. And then Bobby swears to this day that someone was uh, the year before that, I think just, or it might've been that same race that they were, someone was basically shooting his tires. So he would have, you know, flat tires. It got a little, a little dicey, but he ended up winning the championship. There's, there's a couple of stories that, uh, you know, like makes you scratch your head about, you know, what was actually going on. But Riverside was, a great track and i mean there, there's a lot of history there and eventually they ended up having to move you know from riverside and part of that was that it, the land and area around it was sold and now there is a housing development there tragically yes tragically and i think if you know where to look and you know the great uh mrn announcer the late barney hall had told me this he said if you know where to look you can find about 15 or 20 feet of the original track they didn't tear up but the rest of it and it's in somebody's backyard but the there's a big housing development now and if you didn't know where to look you wouldn't even know there was a racetrack same thing with ontario motor speedway when it was out that area too mm -hmm. you have to go if you go to ontario you have to know where to look to find where that racetrack was because it you couldn't find it same with same thing with riverside yeah and and you know i just i would have loved to have seen a race at riverside watching tim richmond drive through the s's there uh, i've seen i've seen red heard stories of how how great a driver he was at that racetrack uh his last wins i mean he he had several wins at, at riverside and um in between there and pocono i feel like those are the places he owned more than any other racetrack but i would love to see riverside i don't know how they do it It'd be a heck of a challenge, but to see iRacing put Riverside up there, man, that would be so cool. Um, when I was in college, there was a, I'm trying to think of what was it on Xbox? I think it was on Xbox 360, maybe Xbox 360, Nintendo Wii. I don't know if you ever played those, Ben. Um, mm. you, you strike me as a big gamer, but, 
No, um, no. <laughs> but Aaron, um, my son Aaron did. Okay. I, I never really got. All right, let's put it this way: we 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 raced each other, mm-hmm. and I got pretty well trounced. Okay. So he he pretty well blew me away. So there you go. When I was in college, um, a game came out called Indianapolis Five Hundred Evolution, and one of the, it was it, I was Indy cars in the sixties and seventies, which is as cool as it sounds. Um, and one of the tracks on the game was Riverside. It's the only time I ever got to race at Riverside, which was really really cool to me. Um, but yeah, that, that would be, uh, I feel like that'd be a fun thing for them to add. Um, to your point, uh, when I, I got my first racing game and my first co- game console, when I was nine, I just turned nine. I, I was a PC gamer before everybody else was a PC gamer. So my granddaddy get, got me a PC when I was five and, um, I played the original Papyrus IndyCar game. And, um, a few months ago, myself and Scott Speed were talking about that. And about how we used to, you know, race that when we were kids. He's several years older than me, but we both did the same thing. And um, when he was a kid, him and AJ Allmendinger used to race on the Papyrus IndyCar game. And then, then the NASCAR game came out in '94, and that was a game changer. Uh, no pun intended. Played the heck out of that with the original Thrustmaster steering wheel, which again, me and Scott Speed were laughed about because he had the same setup as, as me. Um, then I got a PlayStation Christmas in 1996, and. Um, like NBA in the Zone, PJ Tour '97. I played NBA in the Zone a lot, but the the one I played the most, man, was Andretti Racing. It was a game that had stock cars and Indy cars. Um, I would race my dad on that game too, and uh, he was he wasn't bad. He was pretty good. Um, maybe I just wasn't very good at the time because I was getting used to using a controller. Um, but you know, we get on the ovals, and he was he was pretty competitive. But um, you know. I, and my memories may be going away, maybe it's not, but I feel like I used to wipe the floor with him on the road courses. Um, but you, you just got those fun moments, you know, that you remember. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. He uh, he taught me unknowingly. He taught me how to win the three point shootout NBA Live '98 because I thought I was pretty good at it, and then I challenged him to do it, and he did what would piss off any ten year old kid. Is he, he beat me, and I was like, "Well, that can't happen. I play this mm-hmm. all the time. How do I lose?" Well, I was a ten year old kid. Of course, I was going to lose, and then. I figured out he was timing it in a way that I didn't know, and so I figured that out, and he actually taught me a thing or two on video games, which right. well, I you bet know, he doesn't know to this day. How about that? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, timing was always, always what needed to be uh, done at Riverside International Raceway because it was such a, such a winding, it was a wide track, but it was a winding track, up and down sort of uh, track, and I mean, you just had some of the very greatest, neatest guys to win there. I mean, you had, and, and let's keep this in mind. A lot of times, the drivers in that era, when they went to to a road course, their only, uh, you know, plan as far as the race was to get out. I mean, just yeah, just you know, finish. do the race and leave because because they just weren't great road racers. Then, but then you had the likes of say the like I said, the Dan Gurneys and Parnelli Jones and Bobby Allison's and Boy. Richard Petty, David yep. Pearson, Kale, all those guys ran so well there but i think the one that won the most races there had to be gurney because in 63 he was there one for the wood brothers they came back 64 65 66 for the wood brothers came back again in 68 and one for the wood brothers so he's a five-time winner at riverside but you know something bobby allison told me one time he said the reason he thought he was so good on uh, road courses and he wouldn't he wouldn't tell and he wouldn't let anybody know this at the time because he didn't want to give away his secret but he would not let CBS or NBC or any of the top uh, TV affiliates uh, or stations, uh, you know, to do it. They wouldn't. He would not let them film inside of the car where his feet were, and the reason was he didn't 
a lot of times he wouldn't uh, push in the clutch when he when he did the uh, changing gears, hmm. and so that gave him half second type you know yeah. advantages. And when you add all that up, by the end of the race, that's why he was you know, usually out front. And if he wasn't out front, he had some kind of mechanical problem. But uh, he was very, very good on the road courses, and that was kind of his secret. But, but no kidding, he wouldn't let anybody, you know, put a, a foot camera in his car because he didn't want the crew and anybody to know what he was doing. Maybe just because he, he was wearing green shoes and socks, and he didn't want anybody to know that green's actually good luck. <laughs> Maybe that's it. I don't know. But he, I just know this: he had a lot of good luck on on say places like Riverside and yeah, and and uh, you know, and that was a, a good track for him. He did he did run very, very well there, and has several victories but yeah riverside is just a neat track and you know that real quick there was a guy named eddie gray who won the first one there in june of 1958 and then uh almost 30 years to the day on june 12th four days difference uh rusty wallace was the last winner there in 1988 so yeah it was just it was about 30 years of great racing in california like like rusty in real life i was able to win on road courses and ovals on andretti racing um, but you, you talked about Bobby Allison, Ben, and, um, you know, we're going to figure out whether the foot cam, the, the band foot cam was because of him figuring out not to use the clutch. Or like I said, I think it's cause he was wearing green socks and green shoes and he just changed his shoes before he got out of the car in victory lane. But maybe we'll find out one of these days. One thing I do know though, Ben, mm-hmm. when Bobby was running really well in the 22 car, he won the championship at Riverside his crew chief, one of the coolest personalities I have ever met in NASCAR history. You talk about a guy who has spent a lifetime in NASCAR. Uh, <laughs> Gary Nelson, what what an awesome guy. Like I said, just a, a unique individual. Gary was Bobby's crew chief uh, back in those days. And um, as Daryl Waltrip has told me before, had a personality that was different to a lot of crew chiefs in the sport. And some of that was probably attributed to the fact that Gary was a West Coast guy in an East Coast sport. Yeah, I would totally agree. And Gary was one of these very, very smart guys who was very sly also about what he wanted to do with race cars. And when you ask him questions uh, during a race, you know, I remember some of the TV commentators would ask him, and he'd give him good answers, but he really wouldn't. It was, a, it was a way that they got what they needed, but he really didn't tell them anything, if that makes any sense. But, oh, yeah. You know, G- Gary was was really good, but one of the funniest quotes I think I'd ever heard was from Robert Yates. And Robert's, you know, when when uh, NASCAR hired Gary to become their technical director, he said, "Well, he they just eliminated seventy percent of their cheating because <laughs> <laughs> they they hired Gary to smart do the move. job." Yeah, smart yeah, move. Yeah, very smart move. But I, I you're talking about smart moves. I, I got to share this about Gary. He was he was very innovative in everything that he did. But a very quick story, if I can keep it short. You can keep it as the, long as you want, man. Man, we'll do a five-hour okay. podcast if you want. All right, all there you good. go. That works. That works. But uh, back in 1977, there was a car at Diegard Racing called Bertha, and Bertha was one of these big Monte Carlos uh-huh. from the mid. And even if you remember what a Monte Carlo from the 70s looked like, a land yacht like the size of a, yeah, yeah, pretty much like a motorhome, aircraft carrier. Yeah, pretty much. And it was just a big car. But this car was named Bertha. And so they had been trying this trick. And it's not a, it wasn't a new trick. A lot of times it had been used before, not with the mo- with as much, uh, you know, fanfare uh, if, or notoriety, I guess. But uh-huh. what, what it was is they were putting uh, buckshot in the roll cage. And then when the uh, to weigh the car before the race, and they didn't weigh them after. 
the race, which is kind of strange. But that, what they would do is they put Buckshot in the roll cage, and then Daryl Waltrip was their driver, and he would radio to the crew, and he'd say, bombs away, and he'd flip a switch. <laughs> and all this <laughs> all this Buckshot would come out. It would come out very fast, but it would come out a little bit at a time. Oh, man. Okay. okay. So by the, yeah, by the time the race was over with, he was three 400 pounds lighter in the car. Well, they had been suspect now they meaning nascar had been suspecting something but they couldn't really nail it down where well, they went i uh, don't recall the name of the i want to call it nashville they went somewhere it was a short track and they did the bombs away thing and and all that comes out well it broke the windshields of some of the cars behind them so they all right so but technically they're caught okay mm-hmm. so they after the race they go in the garage and NASCAR says, we're going to cut this car uh, to two pieces. We're going to find out where you got that buckshot. We don't have any buckshot. No, no, not us. You know, mm-hmm. so what, Gary was, his idea was it, it, there's a stop right there on the, on the left side of the car and a right side of the car, if it's a red car's car, but at the bottom of the door where they would place the jack. Well, that's where NASCAR jacked up the car and that's where the buckshot was coming out of. So when they jacked up the car, they knew they were home free. They weren't going to catch them, and they stopped doing that. But they came really, really close to you know having a major fine and losing points. But it was to try. But this was an old Harry Hyde trick. Yeah, you know, Harry Hyde was a crusty old crew chief that won races with Bobby Isaac and and other drivers. And so it wasn't totally new. It just had been revamped to do the buckshot idea. But but they called the car Buckshot Bertha for that reason because it had it would hold several hundred pounds of. Of buckshot and over the like I say over the period of the race, just enough of a hole under that stop to where it would let a little bit out at a time, and then by the end of the race they uh, they were about 300 400 pounds lighter. But after that happened, that's when NASCAR started weighing the cars before the race and after the race. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, uh, that car was so technologically advanced uh, that Roy Jones in the 1970s named his son Buckshot after that car. I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, okay. So did you, how did you learn that story, Ben? Did, did, did Gary tell you that or did you read it? How did you find that out? I'm curious. Well, that, that was a story that a little bit of him telling me, but I did an article for American racing classics, which was a publication that we, it was a side publication when NASCAR scene illustrated sort of like a, sort of like a time life yeah. series of hardback books. And I wrote the story, uh, for that, and that's how I discovered it. But I believe I, you know, I did talk to Gary and talk to Daryl, and you know, when it came out in the early '90s, they were a little more close-lipped about it. It's, it's more of a legendary story now, but yeah, it was just that's how it came about. And and you know, Buckshot Bertha won some races, and I believe somewhere along the way it got wrecked, and then they put it at the back of the shop, and someone bought it and restored it. Not sure exactly where it is now. It could be the one in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Not sure. But uh, that's what happens with a lot of those old cars where, you know, they get... Uh, People just didn't think to, to preserve them, which is what makes yeah. it so crazy that Dale's uh, Good Wrench Nova is still in great shape yeah. because of Dale and, Jr.'s work. Yeah, and you know, there's another car real quick that comes to mind, uh, the 1976 Mercury that David Pearson drove for the Wood Brothers that won the Daytona 500, but it won damaged when he and Richard Petty mm-hmm. crashed. Uh, going over the start finish line yeah. Pearson won the race by 20 some miles an hour because he got his car started had the presence of mind to push the clutch in and, and keep his engine running where, where Richard's car wouldn't run but that particular car got set 
out behind the Wood Brothers shop, and then someone ended up buying it, and I think they raised someone else, uh, Blackie, uh, I can't think of the Blackie guy's name. Blackie Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. And he bought it, and I raced it some. And then it was restored back to being a 21 car, and I believe it's in a museum maybe around Chicago. I'm not sure exactly. It's not in this area, okay. not in the south. But, you know, I think to myself, well, wow, I mean, if you had the presence of mind, and back then they didn't have a fleet of cars like they do today. They'd yeah. have to fix what they had and run them. But you think, what a great museum piece to say, here's the car wrecked just like it was when it came out of Victory Lane. I just think that kind of stuff would be cool. But no, back in that day, they didn't have the 15 and 20 cars and all that, the big shops like they do now. They needed to rely on those cars to to fix it, to to go to the next super speedway race. They only had, I don't know, maybe the Wood Brothers might have, might have had three, four cars at the most. Back in 71, when they ran the 21 car that Pearson, uh, or 72, when Pearson run, won so many races, 72, 73, they only had two of those cars. And one of those Perlator Mercury's had a number 41 on it at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and A.J. Foyt ran the 41 car in that race, and David Pearson ran the 21 car. Hmm. And the car, the 21 car that day got damaged pretty heavily when he and Charlie Glotzbach got into a crash off of Turn 4. So my point is that they, they couldn't save a lot of those cars and make museum cars yeah. out of them because they needed the car to run the business to, to be sure. able to go out and race. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and interestingly enough, that car that Pearson won in the 76 500, that was his only Daytona 500 win. So the second winningest cup driver of all time, mm-hmm. only uh, only bagged one Daytona 500. So then stepping back a couple minutes, uh, the reason I asked you how you find out that story about Gary Nelson and Buckshot Bertha, as you called it, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on if you believe that the statute of limitations has passed on uh, on all these 80s stories. Because I've got one that Gary told me. I, I was doing a feature on Gary. I did not put this in the story. This was for Speed Sport Magazine 2014. I did not put this in the story in the magazine. I've told a couple of my friends this story. I have not told anybody else because I don't know if Gary wants me to tell the story or not, mm-hmm. but I kind of want to now. So, mm-hmm. dear listener, you may get regaled with something which you did not know, um, but you may have already had an idea of. And so, well, All I can say is it's not true, so there you go. That's true. I really like <laughs> Gary. I don't want to upset yeah. Gary. I think the world of Gary, I haven't seen him in a couple of years, um, but he is a super nice, fascinating gentleman. Um, I am a fan of his and have been a fan of his uh, since I was a kid. And before he worked at NASCAR, he was also Kyle Petty's crew chief. But mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you the story. So, okay. Gary, please don't get mad at me. So, Ben, 1986 Daytona 500. Um, Dale Earnhardt is an overwhelming favorite, if you'll recall. Mm-hmm. He does not win the race. He does not win a race because he runs out of fuel and has to pit in the last couple laps of the race. Now, Jeff Bodine, who's driving for Hendrick Motorsports, which is a two-car team for the first time ever in 1986 because Tim Richmond comes to the fold. Um, Tim Richmond started the back, did not win the race. Jeff Bodine wins the Daytona 500 in 1986, driving the yellow and white Levi Garrett number 5 Chevy Monte Carlo, which is a badass-looking car. Um, I have the hat from 1986, too. My granddaddy got it that year at North Wilkesboro. But I digress. Mm-hmm. 86 Daytona 500, Ben. Jeff Bodine wins a race. He just managed to stretch his fuel just long enough to beat Dale Earnhardt, forcing Dale to pit, and Jeff wins a race. Was it strategy? Well, nobody knows. 
Actually, they do. Gary knows. I know. Bodine probably knows some of the crew guys. Here's what happened. I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who else knows the story. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. We'll see. Um, so, Bush Clash cars are going through tech inspection. Um, they roll the number five car. They, the Clash car and the 500 car, like now, while there was not a fleet of cars then, Hendrick had different cars for, for these races. So, uh, Bodine, they, they go through tech. And they roll the clash car through. And then somebody on the crew um, calls this commotion that distracted the uh, the NASCAR officials. And as, uh, you know, and they figured out whatever it was, and so they solve it. Um, and they get back to doing tech, and so they push the, you know, the, the five car through again for tech, for Daytona 500 tech. And it passes again. So, all right, you know, we're good to go. Um well, what they didn't know was uh, they didn't ever push the Daytona 500 car through tech, Ben. They pushed the Bush Clash car through twice. What they did was they caused this commotion, and they distracted the officials, and then they just rolled the Clash car back through again. Um, so, of course, it passed tech twice because it was legal. Well, there was a little difference in the Daytona 500 car that Jeff Bodine drove. See, what they did then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it exactly as Gary told me. What they did then was they didn't measure the size of the bladder that held the fuel. They measure the size of the fuel cell. Well, the fuel mm-hmm. cell was fine. They stretched the bladder that held the fuel to where it would hold an extra gallon, gallon and a half of gas. So everybody else had, what, 22 gallons? Bodine's mm-hmm. car had about 23 gallons. And if you watch the race on the CBS broadcast on YouTube, they ask him, I think it was David Spain or Mike Joy, asks Gary late in the race, you guys think Jeff can make it on fuel? And Gary kind of slyly smiles. He's like, I don't know. We're going to try. He knew he could make it on fuel. They knew they were good. And he made it. And he won the Daytona 500. I just thought that was so cool that it was it was Gary. Not break, He did not break the rules. He just manipulated the rules. And his cars passed inspection, Ben, both times. It was just, you know, wasn't his fault that they... Every car they rolled through tech passed inspection, you know. Now, if they didn't roll every car through tech, hey, who's 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 really at fault here, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and you know what? We could probably do an entire uh, a life and time and NASCAR show on just the the cheating aspects, or <laughs> or let's say it this way: the innovative uh, ways to sure. make a car gun better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I hope Gary's so, not mad at us because we have we have. Uh, divulge two of Gary's best secrets. Well, that's probably not his best stuff. <laughs> All right, that's the only he's one I got. Done, so. He's probably done some stuff that you know what you might might really that make you scratch. So your head. true because Gary probably told us these things to get us off the trail of the crazier things that Gary did. Well, that's true. That's true. We we still don't know, know the story of Rockingham and Kyle Petty. How Kyle led four hundred and eighty four of yeah. four hundred ninety two laps one race at Rockingham. I uh, he still got that one. We, we still yeah, need to figure and, that one out. You know, back in 73, real quick, there was uh, a plate, uh, you know, and this is probably not the only time it's happened, but they put a plate some way into the uh, engine and uh, the driver could flip a switch inside the race car and pull the restrictor plate back and <laughs> and get a huge amount more horsepower, stuff like that. Yeah. And, of course, we've heard about uh, engines that were built some way where they were bigger than they were, some type of paraffin that they could use 
to where after the paraffin sort of burned off, then suddenly you got a lot more cubic inch. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. And I mean, right. my son, Aaron, is an engineer for RCR and or ECR, and he could talk circles around me. But I just know that there's times that some very innovative things have happened you know, we when they used to just keep shelves on the shelves of all these things that they found. And, you know, that's what's so interesting is they would uh, – these guys a lot of times were not college grads and they were not engineers, uh, but they could come up with some incredibly innovative things to do to race cars and make them last longer and, and have more fuel and drive better. And, sure. You know, and one more quick one, I can tell you this. 1985 – they had two Budweiser cars at Junior Johnson's place with Daryl Waltrip in one, Neil Bonnet in one. Mm-hmm. Those cars are down in the uh, museum down at Talladega Super Speedway at the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. If yeah. you went in there and you pulled a tape measure out of your pocket and you put a tape measure on the front of the 11 car and the front of the 12 car, they look exact, okay? But if you measure them, the, the 12 car is about four inches narrower than the, than the uh, 11. Thus, mm-hmm. he won some, Neil won some races in 85. And so little things, like, and that's when you see the templates and such, the side templates and the hood templates and all these things coming out. And a lot of times these things are developed after they come up with when they when NASCAR would find out what went wrong. Yeah, or, I mean they cheat and they they're like, all right, well now right. we got to add that to the rule book now because yeah, Gary so, Nelson or Junior Johnson did this or that. Yeah, so that's why you know, and ironically, very quickly, ironically, the first uh, rules that were issued to the drivers in 1948, 47, back when NASCAR was formed, was like a page. Yeah. Okay, maybe not even a full page. Of course, now I don't know how many pages are in the rule book. But it's because every one of these things that's in there is come about because someone bent the rules a little bit and come up with something to, you know, so they've had to go back and counteract that. There's still more things to do, but I've heard crew members say this day and time that there's not much more wiggle room in these cars anymore because when you find something that that's really cool now, it's like really cool. Before, crew members would say, hey, I know this or that, and I'll bring it to your team if you'll hire me. Oh, I bet Chad Knauss has a graveyard of skeletons in his closet. Some all things uh, they figured out. Yeah, there's yeah, there's some things he knows. <laughs> Chad is Chad is a, a genius in in the in mm-hmm. the you know line of Gary Nelson of um, of Junior Johnson guy. He just I mean, just smarter, just out th- could outthink you and out strategize you. Um, mm-hmm. And Ben, in a later episode, I'm uh, we're gonna have to we might have to figure out a little bit about Bobby Allison's rear bumper from the 1982 Daytona 500. Um, cause I, I'm more, I'm curious if Bobby ever told you about his, what he thinks about, you know, what happened there. Um, but Hey, he won Daytona 500 and so did Jeff Bodine. So, um, we'll right. get into that. We'll get into that in another episode, but for now, Ben, I think we have crossed the finish line. Checkered flag is out on episode 13. Uh, it has been a blast as always chatting up with you. We're going to be back with episode 14 faster than Ben driving on the interstate after a ride with Bobby Allison. Um, yes, <laughs> that was the one I had written. I had, I had, I had to throw that one out there. Um, faster than I could eat a Reese cup. There you go. That? Yeah. Which is, which is much, much faster than me as yeah, we've learned. Exactly. Um, yes. in the meantime, throw a rating our way, wherever you're listening. And if you're nearby us in person, throw some Reese cups our way. We'd love your feedback and your Reese cups. Um, but in the meantime, for Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Um, we're going to go get some Reese cups. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. It's been an absolute blast. We can't wait to bring you episode 14. Got some cool stuff, and we might even talk about a guy named Smoke. You never know. But until then, so long, everybody. 
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.